Good afternoon and welcome to today's activity. There is no commercial support. Speakers and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial interests. If you have a question for the presenter and you're viewing online, please enter it into the Q&A bubble and we'll ask at the end of the presentation. If you are in person today, you will receive a SurveyMonkey link for your evaluation after the activity. For those viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the links icon at the bottom of the screen. It is my pleasure to introduce today's guest speaker, Dr. Joseph Cooper. He serves as Associate Professor of Clinical Psychiatry, Director of Undergraduate Medical Education in Psychiatry, and Director of the Behavioral Neurology and Neuropsychiatry Fellowship in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He completed his undergraduate degree in neuroscience at John Hopkins University, medical school and residency in psychiatry at the University of Chicago and fellowship in behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry at Northwestern University. His interests include integrating neuroscience and neuropsychiatric perspectives into general psychiatric education as a means for reducing stigma and using electroconvulsive therapy to treat neuropsychiatric disorders. Join me in welcoming Dr. Cooper. Thank you. Uh, thanks for the, the introduction. Uh, and uh, I'm really delighted to uh, be here today to talk to you um, about some of um, my work. Uh, in addition to my roles at UIC, I'm gonna be talking to you today about a role I have with the National Neuroscience Curriculum Initiative and some of the work that uh, we've been doing on um, using neuroscience education to combat stigma and uh, improve mental health. Um, our disclosures, uh, the NNCI has never solicited uh, any type of industry funding, but we have had funding from uh, this philanthropic grant that goes through the NIH and uh, funding from the Society of Biological Psychiatry and ACNP. Um, uh, so they've helped fund our work. Uh, this is uh, the team that I'd like to, to thank up front. Um, without them, uh, this uh, work I'll tell you about today would, uh, would not be possible. So the senior leadership team of the NNCI is uh, uh, Dave Ross in Alberta, Canada, the professor and chair there, Melissa Arbuckle, who's the vice chair of education in Columbia, Mike Travis, who's the residency director in Pittsburgh, and uh, Ashley Walker, who's the residency director in, uh, in Oklahoma, and myself. Uh, the learning objectives were sent out before, so I'm, I'm not going to read them to you, but uh, uh, here they are for you again. Um, and the place I really want to start is, is uh, precisely with stigma. Uh, stigma has surrounded um, mental illness. Uh, for at least thousands of years, uh, ideas that mental illness uh, might be related to uh, moral or religious failings or possession by demons. These are uh, ancient old ideas, and they're not uh, completely uh, resolved in modern society. Uh, these things still, uh, still pervade. Um, the mentally ill uh, have tended to be uh, separated off from society and uh, treated far worse than that many times. 
labeling mentally ill as witches and um, burning at the stake. Uh, this clearly happened to mentally ill people. The Renaissance uh, uh, brought about some people with uh, the idea that maybe to search for mental illness, we might look towards the head and more specifically the brain. Um, and clearly from the other side of this painting, you can see uh, other forces of, in society that, that were uh, pleading that this was a wrong-headed notion to go look towards the brain. Uh, looking towards the head and the brain is, is not a, a, a Renaissance new idea. The idea that there might be evil spirits that need to be let out by trepanation is actually a very old idea. Um, and uh, this evidence of actually very careful trepanation uh, that was done um, uh, uh, over 4,000 years ago is uh, the age of this skull. Um, it's uh, anyone's guesses to the indication, but it's probably not what we would do this for today, which would be something like a subdural hematoma. It was probably for something closer aligned to um, uh, behavioral disturbance or mental illness. This uh, uh, cartoon, if you can call it that, is from the late 1700s uh, uh, in what's called the Hospital for Lunatics. Um, and people are labeled as incurable and um, are uh, deprived of their rights and chained to the wall. Um, uh, I, I find this uh, disturbing uh, cartoon um, uh, particularly pr provocative for, for one reason, um, uh, which is uh, this word. So this word lunatic um, uh, it still remains with us today. You hear it colloquially sometimes. Physicians tend to not use that word, um, uh, but uh, uh, its origins are, are of interest to me because um, it comes uh, uh, from the word luna or uh, moon, and, uh, and, its, and its origins are actually uh, from a possession by the moon goddess. And the idea was that, that a possession by the moon goddess was originally a, uh, uh, an explanation for what we today call epilepsy. And epilepsy for thousands of years was a mental disturbance, was a psychiatric diagnosis. And uh, somehow in the last hundred years, we've a little bit changed how modern medicine thinks about that. Something about discovering an EEG seeing synchronous discharges coming out of the brain has kind of transformed, maybe not removed all the stigma from epilepsy, but transformed it from a stigmatized unknown to some place within a modern medical diagnosis that most people would call a neurologic disorder today and not a psychiatric one. And um, uh, I, I'm intrigued by that and the idea that somehow uh, this discovery of a biomarker, understanding better the neurobiology and pathophysiology of something, uh, has worked not immediately, but over hundreds of years to lessen the stigma, at the very least, of something that used to be a stigmatized mental disorder. The mentally ill were treated very poorly through the 1800s. Um, these are from history of psychiatry museum, uh, uh, some including real uh, devices that uh, were uh, used to uh, uh, torture and isolate the uh, mentally ill. 
And, and the 20th century didn't start off too much better in terms of treatment. Uh, uh, this, uh, these are pictures of hydrotherapy uh, that uh, was used um, uh, for psychiatric indications without efficacy. Um, this is a picture of uh, the induction of an, insula, uh, an insulin coma, uh, which uh, was also a treatment without much uh, efficacy. And this is a picture, of course, of the only psychiatric treatment to ever win the Nobel Prize in medicine, which is the frontal lobotomy, uh, which uh, won the Nobel Prize because it had profound effects. Um, uh, its side effects uh, were even more profound, um, and uh, uh, and it uh, remains what we think of as a, a, a dark chapter in psychiatric uh, treatment um, that was really not all that long ago. The 20th century also provided us with uh, psychodynamic uh, psychotherapy approaches. And uh, these can be useful for some things in psychiatry, but when we had no other tools, we attempted to twist uh, and turn this methodology to treat everything under uh, the umbrella of psych uh, psychiatry. And uh, that is where we uh, uh, erred in the uh, 20th century was attempting to use one hammer for all nails. Towards the end of the 20th century, things started to change. Uh, uh, part of the uh, dramatic change in the field happened with the publication of uh, this document. Uh, in 1980, the DSM-3 was published and uh, for the first time uh, actually used some amount of evidence to categorize uh, and sort mental illnesses and diagnoses. Uh, based on their longitudinal course over time uh, and symptoms that held together. Uh, and there was at least uh, the efforts of um, some epidemiology to inform this document. Uh, neurobiology was notably not very present in this document. And um, that's a tradition that we've kept up with. So the progress from 1980 looks something like this. Um, you may be familiar with the colors. We now have teal. Um, and uh, the fundamental underlying structure of this document hasn't changed. We've made it a little better. Uh, things have been refined. Some of the worst bits have been uh, edited out, and uh, uh, it does continue to improve with each iteration. Uh, it still fundamentally is a, is a document of sorting symptoms into symptom clusters and umbrellas and, and does not deal with the pathophysiology or questions like what's the neurobiology of uh, psychiatric illness. It's uh, uh, fundamentally agnostic on, on those sorts of questions, um, which uh, may have been a fair place to be in 1980 when the first version was, uh, was written because this is what our ability to image the brain looked like when DSM-3 came out. This is a CT scan. Uh, this was a CT scan uh, uh, actually from 1977, so as they were prepping to write the DSM-3. This is what our ability to image the brain looked like. Now, this looks grainy by modern standards of thinking of neuroimaging, but uh, just before we had this technology, our ability to image the brain looked like this. Uh, and so if we uh, think of the... Uh, 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 this um, uh, mostly picture of bones as uh, the previous best we could do to image the living human brain, 
then we look at the CT scan and uh, are blown away by its resolution. Uh, this is what we had through the uh, most of the 1980s, um, but the 1990s brought about uh, several advances. Um, into the 90s, our ability to image the brain started to look like this. If you just look at the underlying picture itself, uh, you'll see marked resolution of this MRI scan. And then if you look at the color, you'll see something even more dramatic, which is not only our ability to image the brain in greater detail, but our ability to say what parts of the brain are active uh, during different periods of time. Uh, and so looking at how blood flows in the brain as a marker of metabolic activity uh, was the advent of fMRI in the early 90s. And this was a massive uh, uh, insights allowed into how the brain is actually working. Fast forward 10 more years into the turn of the 21st century, and we were able to use techniques like that uh, to um, but advance them and say which parts of the brain are active when other parts of the brain are active. So which parts of the brain are likely talking to each other and which synchronize with each other. And this allowed us to map cortical networks uh, in distributed areas across the brain um, and look at functional connectivity. Now we can uh, look in a, a degree of detail that's uh, even more precise. So not only can we see this fine grain detail of the living uh, human brain, uh, but we can actually look at uh, functional imaging within cortical layers. So within the six layers of cortex that the neocortex has, we can say which ones of them are active during a particular moment or task or activity. Um, and uh, this is a degree of, of resolution that was uh, unthinkable uh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago even. Now, if we want to image an individual neuron, we can use storm imaging techniques and see the microstructure of a neuron at uh, really mind-blowing uh, uh, resolution. This is one of uh, my, my favorite uh, uh, tidbits from modern neuroscience. Uh, this is a um, so-called mother neuron in green, giving daughter neurons in yellow, and next generation in orange, and then the next generation in red. And so what this is showing uh, in, uh, that has now been proven is that neurogenesis is happening in the adult brain. Um, when I was in medical school, uh, not that, that long ago, uh, I was told categorically that this didn't happen outside of the olfactory bulb, that that was the only place in the brain where neurogenesis happened in the adult. That's been proven to be categorically false. And uh, uh, in fact, relevant to psychiatry, it's probably essential that you have synaptogenesis and neurogenesis in your hippocampus in order to uh, come out of a severe depressive episode. This is probably an essential part of that mechanism. And we now know that it, it happens, but this is all new knowledge. This wasn't knowledge when uh, when I was in medical school, and it certainly wasn't knowledge when the people who taught me were in medical school or during doing their training. Uh, this is a, not a human. This is a mouse hippocampus, but this is the image that represents what's called an engram. Uh, a single episodic memory of this mouse can be imaged and could be reactivated can be um, uh, manipulated. The idea in, in mice uh, is already the case that um, forgotten memories in mouse models of Alzheimer's can be reactivated, uh, that um, 
uh, opens the door to possibilities of things like um, happy memories that can't be accessed in a severe depressive state. Could they be reactivated by technology like this one day? Could memories be altered or erased or put in? And all sorts of ethical uh, implications and questions. Uh, the technology in mice is uh, uh, essentially almost there. And, and so we're not far away from wrangling with uh, these things, both to answer um, useful clinical questions for ill patients, um, but also uh, ethical implications for the field about um, what we might be able to do in the not too distant future. Uh, this is a picture uh, that's now a bit dated. This is now from three World Cups ago. Uh, but uh, this uh, uh, man had been paralyzed 10 years before the Brazil World Cup in, in uh, uh, 2014. And um, uh, a, a machine man interface allowed him to uh, walk. He was a quadriplegic and uh, kick out the first ball at the, at the 2014 World Cup. We've uh, advanced more recently. This is just from a year, year and a half ago, July of 2021. Um, the idea that someone who had not been able to communicate uh, after uh, uh, a, a severe uh, uh, paralysis and um, a communication impairment after brain injury uh, was able to be attached to a neuroprosthesis to talk uh, and produce language on a computer just by um, controlling it with uh, his mind, his brain. And um, and potentially uh, bring speech back to people who who couldn't um, form speech. All of that uh, brings us to the idea that uh, I've told you two parallel stories which have not been well integrated. Uh, the idea that modern neuroscience has advanced incredibly, and um, modern psychiatry uh, tends to uh, be attached to uh, the way that we've done things for the latter part of the uh, 20th century and hasn't incorporated these advances in modern uh, neuroscience uh, on a day-to-day -day level. That was really the gap that uh, caused us to come together um, around the time of that Brazil World Cup, now about nine years ago, to form the NNCI, or National Neuroscience Curriculum Initiative. And our goal uh, uh, remains to decrease stigma and enhance health outcomes by integrating a modern neuroscience perspective, both in every facet of um, uh, the treatment of mental illness and the promotion of mental health. Um, related to that, uh, we've been committed to the idea that uh, uh, learning um, and learning complex things like modern neuroscience don't happen by one person pouring knowledge into a large group and then just having light bulbs and rainbows uh, fire, uh, that that's not actually how learning works. Um, lectures don't promote learning. So what we try to do with the NNCI and what I'm going to do with you uh, guys, uh, if you'll play along with me, is to recognize the fact that you guys are a, uh, a diverse group of learners within yourselves. And on anything that we might want to uh, learn about together, there's actually gonna be a, a spectrum of knowledge where uh, some people will be here and some people will be at Z. And so to be uh, respectful of a not one, all, one size fits all approach, um, we need to shift the focus off of, um, uh, in this case, um, me or the teacher 
and onto the group itself. So we're going to do that by trying to have an experience together and trying to have an experience that's based on something uh, clinically relevant uh, that is hopefully um, uh, feels meaningful for uh, uh, your work taking care of patients. And uh, it's by facilitating experiences that we can really uh, change knowledge, skills, attitudes. Um, so that's how we're going to try to get the light bulbs uh, and rainbows to fly. And so we're going to do that by going into a case. So I'm going to um, uh, uh, share with you a snippet of a case and then ask you guys to, um, those of you who are in the auditorium together, uh, to pair up or get into um, uh, groups of maybe three uh, 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 to talk about how you would formulate this case and a couple of quick questions that you you'll, uh, would answer. Um, so we're going to try that now. Here's the case. So this is a 24-year-old, a right-handed man, a college graduate. He presents to you in your clinic. Um, a week ago, he hit his head on a low-hanging shelf. He didn't lose consciousness or wasn't lightheaded. After he sat to recover for a few minutes, when he tried to stand, he found his left leg was weak and was dragging behind him while walking. He was disturbed by this. I have no he has a history of what he calls mild depression and anxiety. He's never been on medicines and therapy, hospitalized, or had lifetime suicidality. So he went to the hospital, and he was admitted to the neurology service for this weakness. The workup, they say, was normal. It included brain, neck, and spinal MRIs. He got a lumbar puncture. He got an EMG. All of these things came back normal. The neurologist proceeded to tell him that this is all in my head and referred him to outpatient psychiatry. That's when he comes to you. You see him in your psychiatric clinic and he reports that his mood's stable, his sleep is normal, his energy, appetite, and concentration are fine. He denies prominent anxiety. He's worried about his leg weakness. He doesn't seem particularly worried about other things. Uh, he denies uh, pain, paresthesias, or sensation changes. He's had no headache or neck or back pain, no vertigo, no visual hearing changes. Anything else you ask him on a physical review of systems is uh, negative. And on an exam, he has um, full strength in his right leg, but only three out of five strength in the left leg. You notice strength sometimes, and then there's a collapsing give way type weakness and a positive Hoover sign. We'll come back to that if you're not sure what that is. When ambulating, the left leg drags behind him. Uh, his reflexes are normal active. He has flexor plantar responses bilaterally. And the remainder of motor, sensory, cerebellar, cognitive, uh, uh, cranial nerves, and cognitive exam is normal. So he's frustrated. He says, uh, they, none of these tests have said anything. He's upset at what the neurologist told him about this being in his head, but he's also confused. He doesn't really know what's going on, and he asks you for your opinion. So this is our case, and this is for you to pair up um, in groups of two to four. Uh, if you're on Zoom, uh, we can't do breakout rooms today, so just think about these yourselves and take a, take a couple of notes. Um, but take three minutes. How would you normally think about this case on your team? What would you say to the patient? Is he faking it? Is it all in his head? How would you answer those concerns? 
So take three minutes and then we'll come back to the large group. All right, I hear I hear some good discussion going on. I don't really know how uh, uh, if anyone okay. if anyone I have they, yeah. oh great. Would any of the people in the auditorium like to uh, like to share any of the points from from their discussion? And anyone on Zoom could share it in the chat, I believe. Or uh, yeah. Okay, we have one right here. Great. Oh, you're not psychiatry? That's okay. I think he's faking it. <laughs> Good stuff. Excellent. We talked about not saying it's all in his head. We will not say that. Okay. Um, we will um, try to encourage the patient and see if we can get other testing done. Okay. Second opinion. Okay. Actually, this is Jennifer, and I thought maybe when he hit his head, something rattled. Uh-huh. I don't, I don't know because I'm non-clinical, but I'll hand the microphone to someone that is. Good. <laughs> hey, good morning, Dr. Cooper. I'm going to speak just for uh, the, the psychiatry residents here. Excellent. I think, as, I think as a group, we came to likely functional neurological disorder. 
Uh, we would also try to normalize it and explain that likely the head injury did do something, although imaging and the testing we have right now couldn't detect it. And uh, we've been taught from our standpoint, normalizing it, CBT therapy, and maybe even physical therapy, possibly to promote some of that neurogenesis might be the best uh, therapy to go from here. Excellent. Uh, uh, so love you, love your answers. So what would you, what would you say to him about, about the idea that this is all in his head? How would you respond to that? I think we would just say that, uh, it's not all in your head. It's not a coincidence that you did have a head trauma and then that this followed and that, although like you stated in, in your uh, presentation so far, our neuroimaging has made a lot of advancements. It's not perfect and may not be able to detect some of those micro changes that might've happened after the injury. Okay, very good. Anyone else wanna uh, throw out other opinions or? Uh, uh... There's I, don't no know how many there, I don't know how many of you there are, so I'm not sure. Yeah. Everyone's so shy. Okay, well, um, I... Thank you to the resident spokesperson uh, for uh, uh, for speaking up. Um, what I'd like to do now is to share this. Um, so uh, as you can see from the title of this, I agree with the uh, uh, formulation and diagnosis that uh, um, our resident spokesperson presented. Um, so this is uh, um, a, a brief video. Um, if uh, the tech in the room can crank the volume as much, I've cranked it as much as I can on my end, and, uh, and we'll watch this together, okay? How can we talk with patients about a diagnosis of a functional neurologic disorder, also known as conversion disorder? This can be a difficult topic to discuss. It's common to worry about how the patient will respond, and it might seem easier to just avoid discussing altogether. Delivering the diagnosis in a clear and empathic manner, however, is a key first step in treatment, and there are guidelines available for how to best approach this discussion. Before we review treatment approaches, though, let's clarify terminology. A functional neurologic disorder refers to real, experienced symptoms that are not explained by traditional neurologic lesion or disorder, which is to say the relevant pathways are macroscopically and structurally intact, but are functioning abnormally. Functional disorders can manifest as either positive symptoms, such as a tremor or non-epileptic episodes, or negative symptoms, such as blindness or weakness. The DSM-5 criteria are relatively straightforward. The two key criteria are altered motor or sensory function and clinical symptoms that are incompatible with a recognized neurologic or general medical condition. So let's return to the case of our patient with lower extremity weakness. How can we show this incompatibility in other words, how can we show that the patient's weakness is not representative of structural impairments in motor pathways? Here's where a basic knowledge of the underlying circuits becomes critical. The primary motor pathway, also known as the corticospinal tract, is relatively simple. Upper motor neurons have cell bodies in the primary motor cortex. Their axons project down the cerebral white matter, cross over in the pyramidal decussation in the medulla, and then continue down the spinal cord, where they ultimately synapse onto a lower motor neuron. The axons of the lower motor neurons form the peripheral nerves that project to skeletal muscle. As such, only three major types of lesions can cause weakness. 
a lesion of the primary motor cortex or its descending axon fibers within the brain because it's above the pyramidal decussation would lead to contralateral upper motor neuron signs. A lesion of the spinal cord because it's below the pyramidal decussation would lead to ipsilateral upper motor neuron signs and potentially lower motor neuron signs at the level of the lesion. And finally, a lesion to the lower motor neuron or the peripheral nerves causes weakness only in the affected area. This biology is critical to our work with patients. Whereas for much of psychiatry, we're forced to rely on diagnoses of exclusion, in the case of functional weakness, there are several neurologic exam maneuvers that can be used to rule in the diagnosis. One such exam maneuver is the Hoover's test. In brief, the Hoover's test involves sensing a lack of effort in the strong leg when asking the patient to lift the weak leg, or in some cases, appreciating strength in the weak leg when asking the patient to focus on lifting their strong leg. These findings are not physically possible in someone with a discrete lesion in this pathway. In other words, the patient's positive Hoover sign confirms the diagnosis of a functional neurologic disorder. This is great news for our patient. We now know what's wrong. So what do we do next? The first and perhaps most challenging piece is to talk to your patient about the diagnosis. As we mentioned above, for many clinicians, this can be a scary process. And in the real world, clinicians often avoid doing so. Here, treatment guidelines can be incredibly helpful. There are five key things to focus on when delivering the diagnosis. First, there's a diagnosis with a name. Even the best intention clinicians have a tendency to simply state what patients don't have and to reference the normal test, such as a normal MRI. It's common for a clinician to say something along the lines of, there is no evidence of a neurologic disease and to avoid sharing the name of the diagnosis. Share with the patient that, based on history and exam findings, the diagnosis is functional weakness, and this is a type of functional neurologic disorder. Second, functional weakness is common, real, and treatable. Emphasize that you don't believe the patient is making up the symptoms and validate the patient's experience. Emphasize that there are good outcomes. Third, explain the rationale for the diagnosis. Show the patient the positive Hoover sign and explain what it means. It can be helpful for a patient to hear that you actually appreciated strength in the weak leg when you asked them to lift the strong leg. Fourth, avoid presuming the cause of weakness. A common pitfall is to focus on potential psychiatric causes prematurely. It's okay to say that you are not sure why this is occurring at this time, that there may be multiple factors contributing to the symptoms, and that through treatment, which often involves both physical therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy, Patients often come to learn the causes of their symptoms themselves. Fifth, provide written information that reviews the key points. As possible resources, you can refer them to www.neurosymptoms.org or to fndhope.org. Now that we know how to diagnose functional weakness and talk to patients about it, we're ready to jump into the more exciting question. What do we understand about the underlying pathophysiology? This is a rapidly evolving, an especially exciting area of clinical neuroscience. One of the first questions investigated by imaging studies is whether these diseases are real. Despite all of the evidence that we've already discussed, it remains common for individuals, and even at times well-intentioned clinicians, to believe that patients with functional neurologic disorders are just faking it or consciously malingering their symptoms. Critically, this is a testable question. Research groups have explored this by conducting imaging studies in which they compared activation of motor pathways between individuals with functional motor loss who were trying to move their affected limb 
with healthy controls who are instructed to pretend to have the same deficit. If functional deficits were feigned or voluntary, we would expect to see similar patterns of brain activation between these two groups. Instead, we see distinctive brain activation patterns that are associated with functional deficits, which is to say the patients are not just faking it. So what are some of the differences? A main finding is that patients with functional neurologic weakness showed increased limbic activity, specifically within the amygdala, as compared with controls. On one hand, this may not be terribly surprising in that we know that many psychiatric illnesses are characterized by hyperactivity or other dysregulation of the limbic system. What's especially interesting in this case, though, is the relationship between limbic activity and motor circuitry. In one study, not only was the amygdala more reactive, but there was increased connectivity between the amygdala and the supplementary motor area. This finding suggests that the limbic system may be exerting heightened control over the initiation of movement. This is a very intuitive finding that correlates well with the clinical experience of patients whose high levels of negative affect may contribute to their motor symptoms. It's also consistent with the idea that while patients may not have any conscious awareness of the process, again, they are not just faking it. There may be a different explanation at a subconscious level for how and why these patients experience real disturbances in their motor control system. There's another cool part of this story. For functional neurologic disorders with positive symptoms such as functional tremor, the abnormal movements are utilizing voluntary motor pathways yet patients don't experience them as such. How is it that these movements are perceived as being involuntary? This question highlights a fascinating piece of neuroscience. Under ordinary circumstances, our voluntary movements are accompanied by a sensory prediction of those movements. So when a movement matches our sensory prediction, we experience agency. A mismatch, however, can give rise to the experience of not being in control of the movement. There are neurologic syndromes of decreased agency or awareness, such as the alien hand syndrome and hemispatial neglect, and they typically involve lesions in the right parietal lobe. Related research tells us that the right temporoparietal junction, or TPJ, is a region involved in comparing sensory predictions and movements, and thus thought to be involved in the experience of agency or lack thereof. An illustrative study of eight patients with functional tremor used a within-subject design to compare the patient's functional movements with a voluntary reproduction of those same movements. With voluntary reproduction of their symptoms, the patient showed normal activity throughout the relevant network. Interestingly, when they compared voluntary to involuntary movement, the authors found decreased activity in the right TPJ with the involuntary functional movements. There was also decreased functional connectivity between the right TPJ and regions involved in sensory feedback. These data suggest that in functional neurologic disorders, areas of body awareness may not be receiving appropriately timed sensory motor signals, thus creating the sensation that, like an alien hand, the movement is not under one's control. While the underlying cause of these disorders is not yet fully understood, the current neuroscience nonetheless demonstrates several critical points. Foremost, brain activation patterns confirm that patients with functional neurologic disorders are not faking their symptoms. Second, key findings include that there is both heightened limbic activity, particularly in the amygdala, and heightened connectivity between limbic structures and motor circuitry, 
which may indicate an abnormal influence of emotion over motor control. And lastly, decreased activation of the right TPJ may reflect a deficit in the pathway responsible for individuals having a sense of self-agency over motor function. Returning to our initial vignette, it's essential that we remember our treatment guidelines. One, the diagnosis has a name. Two, these disorders are common, real, and treatable. Three, there are exam findings that rule in the diagnosis. Four, we should avoid presuming psychologic causes prematurely. And five, it's important to provide written information. Understanding the underlying neuroscience will not only facilitate effective communication with our patients and other clinicians, but may enable us to maintain empathy as we help our patients start on their path to recovery. All right. Uh, good. So um, I uh, would love everybody to um, get back in their in their uh, pairs that they were in and uh, and just take two minutes. Was there anything from from this video that you would uh, incorporate into your formulation? Uh, change your response to the patient, um, faking it, is it all in his head? Um, and what implications might this have for treatment or other questions that you have? So take two minutes and talk about that with your pair, and then we'll talk about it as the whole group. Okay, who who wants to to share any any points that were salient from that or questions that came out of uh, 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 your discussion or the video? Hello, this is Brenton Ote, one of the psychiatry residents. Uh, thank you for this presentation. Um, I think we discussed that most of those things um, we discussed previously, we would probably all be incorporating, um, letting the patient know, you know that it is real, validating their experience. Um, perhaps um, incorporating more patient information, I think sometimes that can be a little bit overlooked. 
after we give the diagnosis, um, giving them some more information so that they can read up and be more knowledgeable about their own uh, diagnoses. Um, but yeah, I think that's the biggest takeaway for me, at least. Great, thanks. Uh, and uh, thanks to uh, uh, MJ Smith too in the uh, for the comments in the chat. I'm gonna. Um, uh, we can come back to to more questions also um, uh, at, at the end. Um, this uh, resources is available, um, and uh, and so in the chat there is is this resource on our NNCI website, which is all open access resources that just require a free registration to track use. Um, so th this was one example of, um, uh, of some of the resources that we, that we put together. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about um, uh, some of the other uh, things that uh, we uh, do and are, and are doing. Um, uh, so, uh, overall, we uh, this was a type of module um, called a clinical neuroscience conversation. We have ten different types of modules, over 150 uh, uh, individual teaching sessions that can be used by facilitators to teach others. Um, and we're a crowdsourced model, so if you're interested in creating educational resources that incorporate modern neuroscience into psychiatry, uh, come join our. Uh, author list uh, um, from uh, uh, many institutions and many individual authors, including many trainees. Um, and over uh, 200 uh, psychiatry programs in the US are using our, our resources in their curriculum somewhere. So this is our website with um, that just requires a uh, registration. Um, and uh, we've had over 4,000 US cities access uh, now up to 180 countries. Uh, with 130,000 or more users and and uh, 1.3 million page views onto uh, our site uh, since we've been doing this. Um, the clinical neuroscience conversations that I showed you about today, uh, other ones include things like borderline personality disorder, endophenotypes and psychosis, PTSD, ADHD. Uh, uh, these are, are out there. For opioid use disorder, we have a series of, uh, of articles that we write that are educational, um, uh, not primary science articles, um, but uh, about uh, that go into biological psychiatry, um, talking about uh, opioid use disorder, things around early life trauma and the role of epigenetics and development of borderline personality disorder, uh, resources there resources for talking about eating disorders and obesity, uh, both uh, written and videos um, on our on our website uh, uh, to talk about the neuroscience behind appetite regulation. And uh, we have a series that are um, targeted at science and society, uh, uh, thinking about uh, societal issues from a neuroscience lens. So this is about uh, uh, historical trauma or how intergenerational trauma might be passed down um, uh, in-group, out-group biases um, and uh, um, the uh, uh, neurobiology uh, underlying some of those uh, issues. 
bystander upstanding effects, looking at the um, uh, biology of the bystander effect and, and some of the neurobiology of effective upstanding. Uh, we looked at the effects of, of COVID and uh, uh, there's uh, things on uh, social, the role of social isolation and what impact that might have um, a piece on the idea that COVID catatonia might might be a thing. This came out a few months into the pandemic and uh, seems to uh, be in something that we need to look at better. We've been interested in the idea of physician wellness. Um, and so uh, we developed uh, uh, this, which is intern year, the, uh, the board game. Um, and uh, this is a, uh, an educational exercise that's an interactive tabletop board game that's a cooperative uh, board game um, where six PGY1s are, um, uh, play together to try to defeat the game itself, much like intern year, everybody can win. Um, and uh, uh, this is intended to spark a fun and safe space to talk about serious issues around physician well-being, uh, rates of physician depression, uh, serious issues like physician suicide, um, and uh, try to stimulate conversations around those types of topics that usually only happen in medicine after something terrible has happened, and trying to uh, get people to talk about these issues in a proactive way and look at systemic factors which influence um, uh, uh, physician wellness. Uh, people get characters within this uh, that have different strengths and weaknesses, and at some point you learn about uh, what your characters uh uh, either uh, vulnerabilities or resiliencies uh, are. Uh, this is a game we played uh, at some educational conferences, even pre-pandemic, and uh, and now have both online uh, versions of it and uh, getting back to tabletop versions. Um, so th this was all before, uh, this was what we were doing before COVID hit. Um, and uh, uh, when uh, we were faced with um, uh, uh, with the idea of of needing online learning resources in the spring of 2020, uh, we transitioned our efforts to what we initially uh, called the quarantine curriculum. So uh, this was uh, under the very naive notion that this new thing called COVID uh, might make residents have to quarantine for 14 days out of the hospital and they need something to do for that 14 days and then everybody could get back to life as normal. Um, and so we packaged uh, our resources together and, and launched uh, some online uh, synchronous sessions and called it the quarantine uh, curriculum. By the time we were done with those 14 days, we, we quickly realized that COVID was likely to be here three years later, as of course it is. Um, and uh, and so we we moved on from that name, but we kept those efforts, and and I uh, turned it into a now course elective, um, which is available uh, both to UIC students here and then in VSLO to uh, uh, students everywhere, and uh, it's now in Canadian course catalogs as well through my colleagues. Um, a role in Alberta. So US and, and Canadian students can get credit for a two-week uh, NNCI course called Neuroscience Perspectives in Psychiatry. 
um, and uh, international and other students can participate uh, even if they don't get formal credit for it. And we've had many um, uh, such participants uh, now, well over 200 participants in the last uh, two and a half years of this. We uh, uh, were initially thinking that packaging these resources was going to be helpful for psychiatry residents at the beginning of the, uh, the pandemic, of course. Uh, students were the ones with the greatest need, and so are, uh, uh, for education, because the psychiatry residents were being deployed to medicine sometimes or very busy uh, clinically, uh, and uh, the students were initially uh, out of the clinical space for a, a point in time. Uh, after running this with students for uh, uh, a year or so, we then decided to transition back to GME, and in 2021, um, we put a, a more longitudinal course together uh, that we called Brain 2021 uh, that was rather than having someone participate full time for two weeks, which can happen for senior medical students, but not for uh, residents. Uh, we made a longitudinal course which could incorporate with people's didactics. We invited programs to join us and play uh, with NNCI materials. Uh, really as a neuroscience curriculum. And we had um, dozens of programs who sent residents to us uh, to, to join. Um, and the format uh, was along the lines of, there's some self-study resources, uh, there's a formative assessment uh, questions, um, and, uh, and that there's an online asynchronous forum where people can reflect and respond. And some time has come together for interactive activities with a small learning pod, which might be done locally or might be done virtually on Zoom. Uh, that's how our, our sessions have, have uh, broken down over time. And now we've run several iterations of this. Uh, ongoing is the 2022-23 version, um, where uh, we've expanded from um, into 16 different, different sessions covering these topics. Uh, uh, across um, the psychiatric uh, continuum, we've uh, uh, invited a C We've gotten CME fund um, credit that we can approve through through this, so uh, we can. We've both affiliated with residency programs to give people um, uh, uh, some credit within their program, and then and then have formal CME credit available. Uh, so uh, these are all um, some of the new things we've been doing with the NNCI. And, um, you know, I thanks for your time and listening to me. And I'm happy to open it up to any kinds of questions about our activity or the NNCI or what else we're up to. Thanks. Thank you, Dr. Cooper. If you're viewing online, please enter your questions in the chat or in the Q&A bubble, and we'll ask those for you. Do we have any questions in the room or comments? Oh yeah, hold on. Hi, thank you so much for your presentation. Um, my name is Amanda, I'm one of the psych residents. I had a quick question that's pretty broad, but what are your thoughts on neurodivergence and that um, the use of that term to describe um, like ADHD, ASD and things like that? Uh... Yeah, um, so the the term is is common, um, and uh, uh, you know I don't I don't think that I I, I guess I, I have different 
different thoughts about it. If it's something that's a that's a useful term that someone wants to use, I'm I, I have no no opposition uh, to it. I I think that um, uh, sometimes that term gets used by people who have more mild versions of uh, of things that fall under those diagnostic schema, um, and who might not always have a. Uh, 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 clinical experience working with some people on the more severe ends of those disorders, especially autism, who are suffering tremendously, for whom uh, a term that sort of normalizes uh, their uh, suffering um, uh, or minimizes it might might not um, be uh, effective. And so I, I do have some concerns when it's applied to um, those types of populations or that or, or that um, uh, and and really, when it comes to something like autism, what needs to be recognized is that for way too long, we've treated that as if it was one thing. And we very clearly know that autism isn't one thing. While autism, like many psychiatric categories, is a big umbrella full of lots of other things, including many things that we have a specific genetic diagnosis for. And, um, and so walking away from treating our illnesses as as just one thing is 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 good, um, and uh, and understanding the diversity in that is is good. Um, if uh, uh, someone uh, is not suffering and is uh, happy to label their symptoms as as neurodivergent or um, neurodiverse, um, uh, I don't I don't have any particular issue with that, but I I don't I I don't think that um, it should be applied to necessarily all people under those umbrellas. Thank you. Any other questions or comments? I don't see any through the chat, so I think we're okay there. Oh, hold on. Hey, Dr. Cooper. Uh, thanks again. This is Dr. Fowler, one of the psych residents here. Uh, we were discussing a little bit earlier, we've heard about functional MRIs for a while and large scientific studies to, you know, do brain mapping, things like that, essentially, for diagnostic criteria. When do you think, if ever, is it going to be cost effective as a psychiatrist to put in orders for that? Um, let's say as cost effective as maybe a chest x-ray when someone comes in with suspected pneumonia, just so we know when, if in the future, we can utilize, you know, that hard data more than just clustering the symptoms like we do right now. Yeah, uh, it's a great question. It's an exciting time to watch the science evolve. Um, I think the question is uh, is mostly more about the science than it is about the cost. I think that we have tons of data that that um, psychiatric illness's uh, cost to society is huge. Treating people with ineffective things has a cost to society that's huge. If we had good science that said that this test would um, uh, cut down on that or allow for more pre precision approaches to get someone to the treatment more quickly that was going to help them, um, I think that there's good people who could who could rally the cost benefit analysis of that. A big part of the issue has been the has been the science getting all the way there. So when we look at things like fMRI, uh, we can see differences in research studies. Um, we can see differences between this group and that group in research studies. But when you look at the individual data, there's this cluster of spots and the pathological group and uh, the uh, and the normal group 
tend to overlap a lot. And so what that means is that if you have a big enough N in your research study, you can show that there's a difference in this fMRI feature. And if you have an N of one individual patient, that, that's not a great diagnostic test. So um, that's where fMRI has really struggled, that there's clearly meaning at the group level and at the individual level, we don't have great new diagnostic tests. People are working on things, and some of the examples of this that are closer to prime time, but not quite there yet, um, are some imaging correlates that might tell us um, uh, if someone's in a depressive episode, what's, what's their risk of mania, which might be an, an interesting question that we would think about having meaning for clinical decision-making. And we make, we think about that already, but we, uh, screen for that just by taking a historic symptoms of mania. Um, and if there was something that could do better than that, then that might be a, a useful question that we could, um, ask to an fMRI scanner, but right now the science doesn't, it's not good enough to, to ask that question and have it be useful. The other piece that's um, that's getting closer um, is some exciting new things out of the, the targeted TMS world. Um, so uh, especially this uh, Stanford team that you may have seen some of their, their recent uh, articles on targeted TMS where they're looking for um, the basic version of it is that if you did some functional imaging beforehand, you could maybe type someone's depression into one of several categories of what functional imaging of depression might look like. And based on that, you can come up with a more individualized target for where to put the TMS machine. Um, you know, that's that's very interesting. That's exciting. They seem to have some good early data. Uh, it's still being researched. I don't think it's uh, quite ready for everyone with a TMS machine to order this before they're doing it. Um, but that's that's not far away. And people are trying to study it on, on bigger scales at more sites uh, and see if that becomes useful. So we're not going to, but, but, but those are two examples where um, we're, uh, it's going to come up for specific questions. Uh, are there specific clinical questions that that we might ask that that it's going to give us something useful for? Uh, we're nowhere near the idea where just instead of coming for your psychiatric diagnostic evaluation, you would just hop into the scanner and it would print out your diagnoses and treatments that are needed. Uh, we're not replacing the psychiatrist with an fMRI scanner in any of our lifetimes. Uh, we're adding to it with more specific, precise questions. And, um, and so, you know, I think that uh, you just have to continue to be on the lookout for when those kinds of things are going to come about and when the science is going to get good enough that we should be adopting it. Thank you, Dr. Cooper. Yeah. Got one more yeah. in the audience yeah. and then we have one online. Okay, go for it. Hello again, Dr. Cooper. It's Dr. Ote, one of the psychiatry residents. Um, so still very early in my career, but I've had two patients so far that have had functional neurologic disorder. Fortunately, one of them already had a history of it, was very accepting of the diagnosis, but the other one 
very resistant to the diagnosis. There must be more workup. There must be something we're missing. What is your approach to the patient that is not willing to accept that diagnosis? Uh, yeah, I, so uh, I, I've met both categories of, of patients in, in, in my time working in this, in this space. Uh, overall, it, um, the data shows that, that, that um, more people are accepting of this diagnosis and that actually giving a good version like what you heard in the video of this diagnosis can, um, can be therapeutic in and of itself. People with non-epileptic episodes have um, reduced rates of uh, seizure-like episodes um, uh, after just receiving a good version of the diagnosis, uh, somewhere between 20 and 50% episode decreasing, um, depending on the study. Uh, so, so giving the diagnosis can be therapeutic. Uh, uh, sitting with someone and it, it, helping them understand how you're thinking about it, um, because as was brought up in the vignette, uh, um, even when getting it from well-intentioned people, uh, uh, patients are often left feeling dismissed or blamed um, and uh, trying to present this as a diagnosis and not just as the absence of other diagnoses um, is an important part of that. Uh, there are a portion of people who uh, 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 continue to pursue other uh, medical workups and in, in, in our slightly uh, broken uh, healthcare system or more than slightly broken, um, uh, if people don't have access to what was done at the hospital just down the road, then sometimes they go and repeat the exact same workup a few miles away. Um, and uh, uh, I, I've noticed that um, that um, more linking of healthcare record systems uh, has helped that a little bit, or at least has potential to help uh, repeating um, unnecessary uh, workups. The overall approach with people who continue to present uh, with um, uh, when a, a diagnosis has already been established has been to um, you know, is it to evaluate if, if the symptom that's being presented is new or different. If it's new or different, of course, people with functional diagnoses can also develop other diagnoses that aren't functional. Um, and so a targeted evaluation of that and a consideration if there's really some diagnostic workup warranted for the new symptom. But for things that have been established and are not new and have had their workup and the workup has uh, uh, has provided a diagnosis of a functional uh, disorder than to not repeat that, to uh, attempt to engage the person, to offer them uh, resources for, uh, uh, for care and follow-up. I will say that sometimes people are very opposed to the idea that they should be talking to a psychiatrist about this. And um, uh, some people... Uh, don't want to, and they don't want to go to talk to a mental health professional for psychotherapy. And there's a place for us to be okay with that and to say, okay, many people with this diagnosis get better if they do physical therapy. How about you meet with a physical therapist and do some muscle exercises and uh, you don't have to talk to me again. Um, you know, that can be an approach to, to these patients, which 
is still within evidence based and is is patient centered based on what they're how they want to engage in the uh, uh, in the symptoms that they're having. Interesting. Okay, we have two online. Uh, first one from uh, Dr. Glass. Are the intergenerational trauma studies focusing on a particular ethnic group? Just curious about how the population is selected. Uh, yeah, so so th uh, the um, that article uh, that's that's on our site uh, was talking about and used the word soul wounds in the name and was talking about a particular um, Native uh, American tribe um, that uh, uh, that has been observed to have intergenerational trauma over being displaced from their homelands, uh, and um, talks about how th this has been passed down as a uh, and and largely understood as a psychological phenomenon. Um, but there's um, other very provocative science uh, from um, mice that you can actually. Um, induce a traumatic memory in a mouse to a particular substance that 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 has a smell um, that would be uh, uh, inducing a traumatic memory in a mouse that can actually be passed down to subsequent generations. Meaning um, there is not a genetic passing down of it, but this is um, for those of you that remember genetics. This is Lamarckian genetics that you can acquire a characteristic and inherit it. And that you can actually do that because of epigenetic imprinting. And this is the type of uh, inheritance that was thought to be a dismissed, incorrect notion that you couldn't, that, that, that Mendel was right, Lamarck was wrong, and that um, uh, we did not uh, inherit uh, acquired characteristics. Um, but there's new biology that says actually through epigenetic imprinting, there are some things that you can uh, acquire, including fear memories. So, um, so that's, uh, I, I think that, um, uh, yes, there are a, a lot of studies of this talking about the Holocaust and Holocaust survivors and, um, uh, the science, uh, that I was talking about was, was in mice and not in people. Um, but the idea that, uh, there may be more than just a, a psychological trauma that can be passed down by telling stories, but there can also be physiological uh, components of trauma memories that can be passed down through epigenetic imprinting as a additional, I think, very provocative idea um, that modern science has, has given us to explain, uh, uh, or at least to partially explain. Uh, these experiences that that um, have been known and written about before that science was around. Interesting. Okay, next question is from Dr. Vicknair. Along the same, along those fMRI use, what are your thoughts about the use of SPECT, such as the work of Daniel Amon, Dr. Daniel Amon? Um, I, I, I in terms of the specific author, I'm not I'm not sure that I have familiarity. Uh, SPECT is um, an imaging modality uh, that um, you know that looks at at water movement um, fundamentally, and so is related to metabolism. Uh, it it has a few psychiatric indications, 
So SPECT or PET uh, type functional imaging can be used to, to differentiate frontotemporal type dementia from Alzheimer's type dementia. Um, and occasionally uh, uh, there's some use of it in um, you know, differentiating in a midlife psychiatric episode, whether this might be FTD. In some of those cases, we're worried about an, an idiopathic psychiatric diagnosis like bipolar or schizophrenia, which we'd like to think would be normal on the SPECT uh, or PET, um, but might not always be the case. But uh, if there's market abnormalities, we'd be more inclined to think it was FTD. Um, there's been some people who've attempted to use these things in situations like ADHD or um, other evaluations. The evidence behind that is less is less solid. Um, uh, and so uh, uh, in general, um, the respect as either part of a um, FTD evaluation or a looking for an epileptic focus um, are kind of clear accepted indications for it. Um, and uh, and I don't use it for other um, idiopathic psychiatric indications. All right. Any other questions in the audience? I don't, I can't see the hands. All right. Thank you, Dr. Cooper. We appreciate your time. Thanks for having me.